And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Kane. I was a longtime foreign correspondent in China where I wrote a book called The Perfect Police State about the Uyghur genocide and the technological surveillance dystopia that China has created. I'm now a senior fellow at the Foundation for American Innovation, where I work on technology and geopolitics. And I recently wrote an article for Persuasion called The Left, TikTok, and the World's Biggest Police State. One of the things that I've found since I returned to America is that the far left is not as interested in human rights in China as they claim to be. I would often go on Twitter, go on social media, go to activist gatherings and ask people how they feel about the Uyghur genocide the response was not what I expected. The response was that America is the original colonial power that the West has created the ideas of subjugation and slavery and colonialism, and all other empires have been subjugated. Therefore, we cannot address the Uyghur genocide without being racist in some way against Asian Americans. This entire narrative really undermined the whole purpose of social justice. Recently in America, there has been this expansion of Chinese technology companies, TikTok being one example. Most of these companies have been deeply involved in helping the Chinese government further the aims of genocide against the Uyghurs. And yet now we're opening our doors to them in America. And when people try to criticize these companies, they're accused of being xenophobic and racist. This is the narrative I'm writing about, the narrative that the West is the evil imperialist core of the world and all others have been subjugated, that these historical issues must be redressed. But when we kill that narrative and open up the possibility that other nations and other empires have committed the same crimes throughout history, that allows us to expose massive human rights atrocities and to speak about them plainly without decorating them in this historical dressage. So this is the article I wrote. It's called The Left TikTok and the World's Biggest Police State. And it's a piece that is now up on persuasion. Hope you enjoy it. Jeffrey Kane's piece called The Left, TikTok, and the World's Biggest Police State was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is William Drisovitz. Bill used to be a professor of English at Yale University and is the author of a number of books, including the bestseller Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. We had a conversation about the nature of American colleges today, the way in which they encourage people to succeed in meritocratic competition, but also to lack a deep commitment to play, to creativity, to principle, to be, in his words, excellent, but cheap. And we had a broader conversation about the kinds of cultural transformations over the last decades that have pushed to the side many of the traditional values of education, of art, of human connection. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We were just chatting before we hit record, and you said that you're always interested in the American elite and what's wrong with it. I'm trying to write a piece at the moment that I'm going to call The Influential Million about 
not just the hyper elite of America, but the broader elite class of the million most influential Americans, which seems to me to be a very strange breed. It's the world that I'm a part of. It's a world that I in many ways admire. It's a world of people who are often very smart and very kind and very hardworking, full of all kinds of small but important virtues of trustworthiness and hard work and friendliness. But it also seems to me to be, you know, a world that is particularly out of touch with the rest of society in a way that goes even beyond what would be true of its equivalent in Germany or France and other places. You know, help me write this essay. How do you think about the American elite in 2023? Right. Well, I think before we get to 2023 and the elite we have at the moment, we should also probably think a little bit about the fact that America's always had and always going to have a complex and tormented relationship with its elite or the elite will with America or everyone will with the concept of an elite because after all, we're built on this idea of democracy and contradistinction to the European origins and their aristocracies. So there's always been this tension between the people and its leaders, the very idea that some people are better than others, that some people have a right to rule. This doesn't sit well with the American idea. And so I think that that leads to among other things, some weird psychic distortions that I think are particularly sharp today, where you have an elite that is constantly trying to disavow its elite status. I think this was sharpened even more by the sort of 60s social revolution, where David Brooks wrote brilliantly about this, I thought, in Bobo's in Paradise years ago, about how we now have this liberal elite, at least, that likes to think of itself still as a kind of insurgency and therefore has a kind of need to disavow its own power and position. At the same time, as you just said, and in some ways this is a related development, we've had since about the 60s or the 70s what we call the meritocracy, where the elite is chosen now not through heredity in the sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant upper class, trained in Ivy League and related institutions, but a broader multi-ethnic, multi-gender elite that is supposedly, and to a certain extent, is selected through meritocratic means, processed through the same institutions, but in a way that's become self-perpetuating. And I write about this in Excellent Sheep from nine years ago, that pretty much as soon as we shifted from this kind of wasp aristocracy to a multi-ethnic meritocracy through the reform of elite college admissions, upper middle class and upper class families started to figure out ways to game the system so that their kids would end up being the winners. You know, which is why we have this overwhelming percentage of students at selective colleges come from the top 10 or 20%. And this eventually became, maybe for related reasons, there's also this residential segregation of the elite, right? There's that book, The Big Sort, which I guess is more about red and blue, but it's certainly there's been a class sorting as well. So now you have an elite that is produced in homogenous suburbs and upscale urban neighborhoods, homogenous private schools or public schools in suburbs that are essentially also homogenous because they're so expensive to live in. And then the same homogenization continues in college and then after college. So now we have this elite that thinks of itself as more democratic than ever, 
because of meritocratic selection and sort of post-60s ideology. And yet it's, as you say, it's comically cut off from the society around it. And I think much of the elite failure that we've seen now for several decades, I might point to the Hillary Clinton campaign as exemplary, has come from this fact that, you know, like this liberal elite that also speaks in the name of the oppressed and the downtrodden and the workers and the marginalized doesn't seem to have any idea what most people in the country experience, what most people want, what most people think. And by most people, I don't mean the white working class that votes for Trump. I mean, also, theoretically, their own constituents. There's a lot in this. By the way, I was astounded to learn a few years ago that the word Bobo really was just made up by David Brooks, because when I was briefly living in Harris after college, spending a year studying there, you know, the, the word Bobo was in such common usage as just a class descriptor within the country. It felt to me like very much an autochthonous term that had arisen within the French discourse and a term that was decades old. When I then heard about Bobos in Paradise later on, I assumed, well, David Brooks spent some time in Paris and heard about this term and thought this is a great descriptor. It's very interesting to me that he actually made up this term and it became, you know, such a key part of French discourse. It's quite an achievement, actually. But to go to a deeper question here, it seems to me that this lack of accurate elite self-description is at the heart of many of these problems, right? I mean, there is something quintessentially American about this, because America's elite was always the self-made elite, it was the immigrant elite, it was always the non-aristocratic elite, and that in many ways, of course, was a lie by 1900 or 1950 as well. But it feels like in 1960, a member of elite would have you know, been happy to think of themselves as the establishment, would have been happy to think of themselves in some key ways as upholding a certain set of American norms and values and institutions. But the post-1960s elite has changed in character in these important ways, that the way you signify your belonging in it is in part to find strange ritualistic ways of performing your rebellion against the elite, right? What it is to be part of the American elite is not to believe in an establishment, not to believe in an elite, to claim to be a rebel, to claim to be an outsider. So why is it that the American elite cannot self-describe in more accurate ways? And what do you think of the social consequences or the cultural consequences that follow from that self-deception? Yeah, it's really remarkable the extent to which people go to delude themselves about their actual position in society and the enormous guilt that seems to be underneath it. I mean, you know, people talk about liberal guilt and there's the elite and then there's the liberal elite and we shouldn't conflate them. But I think it's certainly easier to talk about the liberal elite, which after all has really become, I mean, outside of the Republican Party and their kind of associated cultural institutions, we've really gotten an elite that's pretty homogeneously liberal. The way that I've started to think about this is that elites are often defined as, I think the Merriam-Webster has it as, and I hate people who quote dictionary you know, definitions, but bear with me. The Merriam-Webster defines it as a group of persons who by virtue of position or education exercise much power or influence. Good, straightforward definition. I think America is such a huge and variegated country, but there's multiple groups of such persons. And you know, there's undoubtedly a financial elite of the very, very richest, who aren't always part of a world we're talking about. There's a good article in The Atlantic at some point about 
these regional and local elites, you know, the people who really run small town Mississippi or small town Oregon or small town Ohio, the person who runs the local car dealership and so on. That's a different kind of elite still. And then there's a kind of right-wing counter elite of people running conservative think tanks and pastors of politically engaged mega churches and so on. And each of those is a significant elite group that we should take seriously. But then I think, yes, there's this fourth elite, the elite that you and I are part of, probably most listeners or many listeners of the podcast are part of, of the influential million, as I would put it, right, of the meritocratic good and the great. And that's sort of the elite that we're talking about for the purposes of the conversation, it seems to me. It's a big country. It's a regionalized country. There are elites at many levels in many places in many different kinds. And that's absolutely the case. But I think for analytic purposes, first of all, because I think the liberal elite has particular characteristics that may not be true of the others, especially things that we're talking about, their attitude about themselves. We probably don't need to talk about this, but I think maybe in the conservative elite, of course, when they say elite, they're also not talking about themselves. <laughs> they're talking about the liberal elite and they disavow elite status. I mean, it's again, it's this sort of ancient American need to disavow elite status. But what I'm trying to say is that now, and you mentioned the financial elite, and you know, I, I mean, are they part of what we're talking about or not? One of the striking things in recent years is that larger and larger sections of, let's say, the nationally visible elite, you know, the Fortune 500 elite, the big foundations, the big institutions, the ones that are based in Washington, New York, and the other big cities, have come to identify as liberal, as progressive, have been drawn into kind of the liberal or even progressive cultural sphere. You know, this is like woke capital, right? Where they now see themselves as part of the same political and cultural idea. This would not have been the case by any stretch of the imagination, you know, with corporate CEOs or corporations in their public-facing persona, that they would present themselves as having liberal progressive politics in good standing, right? But to return, the very idea of a liberal elite, right, contains that contradiction. Well, if you're liberal, how can you justify the existence of an elite, especially as what it means to be a liberal has become you know, as I, I keep saying liberal and progressive, but it's kind of getting pushed more and more to the left. So say an old idea, of, I don't know, say a pre-60s idea of a member of the liberal elite, somebody like Henry Luce, the publisher of Time Life, saw himself and his institution as having a mission that was, you know, actually, I think, fairly comfortable, not only comfortably elitist or elite, comfortably aligned with the nation and national greatness and even maybe American empire, although I don't know if Luce would have used that word, right? You know, the old wasp aristocracy contained large liberal elements and they'd go into the State Department and they CIA, government, the military. I think since the 60s and especially in the last few years, we now have not only a disavowal of elite status among the liberal elite, we have more and more a disavowal of the country itself, of America itself. The American idea, America is now filthy, evil, tainted, irredeemable. But we have elites who run the country, who benefit from American wealth and power, from the history of American wealth and power, who are the legatees of all the wealth and power that was built up through slavery and through expropriation of Native Americans and through the northern factories. They have come into this. This is what makes their existence possible, their power real. 
And at the same time, they need to pretend that they're not part of this, that it's always somebody else who's part of it. And this leads to all kinds of absurdities, contradiction, bad faith, I think refusal to recognize reality. I think something like that embarrassing Pepsi ad from a few years ago about you know, the protester who sort of you know takes a Pepsi can and hands it to the riot cop is somehow symbolically at the heart of this, right? I mean, here's a giant corporation sort of trying to appropriate a protest movement for itself with sort of a worst aesthetic. There's some way in which that to me is the height of this kind of self-delusion in the form of this big corporation. There's a deflationary account of the quote-unquote liberal elite or the progressive elite and a more substantive one, right? The deflationary account would go back to what I was saying earlier and say, you know what, this really is just one of the elite groups in the country, and it's no more significant than the other ones. Perhaps in certain ways it's less significant. The reason why you and I are obsessed with it is that it's the one that's most salient to us, that it is the one that insofar as we are elite, it is because we are part of these meritocratic institutions and came up through them, and these are the people we know, and so therefore these are the people of whom we're aware and who sometimes annoy us, right? And then I think there's a more substantive account that tries to say that there's some way in which this specific elite group holds so much cultural power that the others define themselves against it, that they're somehow more central to what happens in the country than these other kinds of elite groups that you might think about or mention. Where do you fall on this? I mean, is this something where, you know, you and I should go to therapy and get over whatever compulsion we have to deal with our societal parental figures and so on? Or do you think that there's a sort of more profound importance to this particular group because it is at the avant-garde or at least at the sort of defining heights of culture and politics? No, I think that's a good question. And I think, you know, this is something that I always try to keep one eye on. Is this all just talk, 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 you know, the chattering class, the, the sort of culture creating class ultimately doesn't really matter very much because the real business is happening elsewhere. The real material form of society is being shaped elsewhere by business, by science and medicine, by government and so forth. And again, I think that's always worth keeping in mind that maybe we're just talking to ourselves and it's a good way to keep us busy and keep us out of trouble and keep us feeling like we're important with our fancy degrees when we're not. But again, in recent years in particular, I mean, we've really seen quite a turn. Progressive ideology has escaped from the humanities departments where I first encountered it when I started graduate school 34 years ago. And it is now running loose in society and penetrating not just the reality describing, but now the reality creating sectors of society. So one obvious example is medicine. I mean, medicine is now being profoundly changed by, for lack of a better word, a woke agenda about the realities of biological gender, about the causes of disparate health outcomes between communities. You know, what's the cause? Is it because doctors are racist or is it because we have an unhealthy food system? This is happening with, you know, discussions around obesity. We can't say that obesity is unhealthy now. We have to talk about positivity. COVID policy, COVID policy was hugely influenced by progressive cultural assumptions or cultural attitudes or cultural enmities. So this is not just a conversation on a podcast or in a seminar room anymore. That's what I would say. And I don't think that you can as neatly separate, say, the cultural elite from 
the rest of the elite for reasons I was saying before that now, you know, I mean, maybe with corporations, it's all just PR, but I'm not even sure that it's all just PR with them. And certainly with other institutions, with nonprofit institutions across the board, this is having real effects. Yeah, it seems to me that if it is a case for this group being particularly significant, and of course, I think each of these elite groups is significant in its own right and has very serious pathologies that, that we need to take seriously, that there is a sense in which the group that we're talking about is setting the cultural life, the normative standards by which to judge things, the sort of natural background assumptions of how to act in a deeper way. And so perhaps it's hard-edged power maybe less clear in certain contexts than that, even of a conservative counter-elite or of some of the regional and local notables, but it's soft power, its ability to define the operating system which really drives the country seems a lot more profound. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that what is the reference point of each of these groups? And in important ways, whether positively or negatively, this group is the reference point in the country today. Now, perhaps that's a collective illusion in which we all somehow are looking to the left, you know, while the magician is carrying out the real work of stage on the right. But it seems to me as though there's a reason why so much of a conversation revolves around this broad set of actors and institutions. And that's because they are fundamental to how we live and how we define ourselves, whether with it or against it. Yeah, I think that's true, especially the last few words you said, or against it, because I think it's important to remember, I think this can be really hard for quote-unquote people like us to see, that there is another half to the country, and it may be even more than another half. In other words, the percentage of people for whom sort of progressive moral prescriptions have a normative command force. You know, the, the number of you feel like, you know, when somebody says you have to say Latinx, they're like, yes, I have to say Latinx. I think that that's relatively small. It's not just that the red half of the country doesn't care. I think much of the blue half doesn't actually care either. And we can very much be in danger at that point of thinking that we're talking to everybody and everybody's listening to us where really it's just a conversation on Twitter. But again, We've now been seeing in recent years that actually the real policy implications, you know, I mentioned medicine. We can also talk about criminal justice and what happened. I mean, granted, this was mainly in blue cities and states, but we've seen, you know, real material changes as the result of ideologically driven policy prescriptions. But to take your point, yes, I think social media and maybe Twitter in particular has a lot to do with it, that it's not just that the liberal elite has this kind of culture setting power, but it's that power has become stronger and more consolidated and the different parts seem to be more aligned, right? You know, universities and the arts and the media and journalism all seem to be working in lockstep together, all seem to be on the same page, all seem to be very much aware of each other, even more than they would have once been. So let's go to one of these links, one of these nexuses, which is between the university and this particular elite we're talking about. Because I think quite clearly the nature of this elite now is deeply meritocratic and the way that you get your entry ticket to a meritocracy is to have attended one of the highly selective colleges and universities in this country. I think the way that you first came to the attention of many people was an extremely viral essay and a book of the same title called Excellent Sheep. What makes 
for young budding members of this elite whom you have the pleasure of teaching at places like Yale, such excellent sheep. What do you mean by that phrase and what's its deeper significance? Right. So the phrase came out of the mouth of one of my students in a moment of kind of startled self-recognition one day in class. She said, are you saying that we're all like excellent sheep? It's such a great phrase because there's the excellent part, right? So these students, they tend to be very smart, certainly very hardworking, very ambitious, very good at delivering what we define as excellence. We have to be careful, though, that excellence as understood as visible to the meritocratic system isn't necessarily the same thing as that we would call excellence, you know, in everyday life. It is being able to give the grown-ups exactly what the grown-ups want. So when you're in high school, you know, you do 15 extracurriculars and you take lots of AP courses and check all the boxes, you know, leadership, service, maybe, you know, play an instrument, foreign language, etc. You can supply exactly what the demand is. And that is what gets recognized as excellence. A lot of things get lost, I think, or at least suppressed in that development of excellence. Independent mindedness, first of all, creativity, the ability to take risks, the ability to challenge the wisdom of the group and to go in your own direction. And I would also say deep intellectual curiosity. Because, I mean, everybody knows this who knows anything about the selective college system and the kinds of people it produces and what it takes. You're just too busy. You don't have time to really sink in deeply to any one subject, any one activity. You have to do too many different things. You have to be very good at too many different things. And also, you learn that the reason you're doing all of these things is to get into the college of your dreams, not for the activity in itself, right? You're not doing math out of the love of math. You may have a love of math, but you don't really have time to cultivate it to the fullest extent. And also everything you're doing, again, the mentality is that everything is instrumental. Okay, so that's the excellent part. And then there's the sheep part, which is what I saw among my students. And this is ultimately why I wrote the book, is that so many of them had reached this point where the world was all before them. They had more opportunities than anybody else in society. They had made it into the elite. They were Yale students. They were on the verge of graduating from Yale. They could do whatever they wanted. And they had no idea what they wanted to do. Because the system is one where you learn to please the grown-ups and you just go from moment to moment, literally from day to day, from test to test, without ever thinking about what you might want without ever being able to ask those fundamental questions about what do I care about? So you don't know, and you don't even know how to go about figuring it out. So those are the excellent sheep. And in the last couple of chapters of the book, I turn and talk about what we've been talking about so far in this conversation, which is the adult elite we have. And I point out that first of all, it was obviously produced by this system. And second of all, it has all of the flaws, all of the problems. It's self-serving, it's risk-averse, it does not seem to have great intellectual capacity and certainly not great moral capacity, meaning the ability to challenge conventional wisdom, to stand up for what you believe at the risk, potentially, of your career, of your position. We could particularize this. As people have been lamenting about 
wokeness, those who have, and what it's been doing to institutions invariably, and I agree with this, the problem is always identified as a failure of the leaders of those institutions to push back against their rank and file. University presidents, editors of major publications, heads of foundations, why won't they stand up for what their institution is supposed to be about? Journalism or the pursuit of truth or, you know, if it's the ACLU, the defense of civil liberties? Well, because (laughs) they haven't kissed this many asses and clawed their way up the greasy pole just to lose their job for the sake of some damn ideal or belief. They're going to make whatever compromises they have to make because fundamentally they are cowards and conformists because that's what got them to the position that they occupy. This rhymes with so many of the things that I've been thinking about teaching at some of the same universities and observing the American elite. One thing I'm struck by when I'm in a place like France is that there's some problems with the things that the French elite believes. I have some serious disagreements, as well as some significant admiration for their understanding of Republican values, for example. And I think in some ways the French elite is much more corrupt, much more self-dealing, much more self-satisfied than the American elite. It's in some ways much more of an insider system, an insider society. But I'm always struck when I speak to members of a French elite, because I think you still believe in something and you're willing to stand up for this even when it's unpopular. And you might actually take a risk in defense of this. And the extent to which that has proved not to be the case among the American elite in the last 10 or so years, you know, on both sides. I mean, the Republican elite that just rolled over for Donald Trump, but also many members of the more mainstream or the more progressive elite that have paid lip service to things. But I know from conversation with them, they don't for a moment believe over the last five or so years has really put me off America in a certain sense. You know, I found it to be a deeply disillusioning experience. The other thing that really strikes true for me is this distinction in how students think about what they do. I was an undergrad in Cambridge in England. And many of the things that I did in college and that many of my friends and classmates did in college were quite similar to what the kids at Harvard were doing once I got there for graduate school and started to teach them as a teaching fellow and so on, right? You know, I did a lot of theater. I had some kids at Harvard who did a lot of theater. Those people who were involved in the newspaper or in some kind of business association and so on. What struck me, though, is that first, personally, the people who did that in England were doing it because they were passionate about these things. And they didn't really think too much about how it would affect their career prospects. And then, sure, when they were seniors and they were applying for jobs in the city, there was a question about what extracurriculars they'd done and they'd put that down. And that was probably helpful to them in getting jobs at, you know, HSBC and Citibank and so on. When I talked to my students at Harvard, uh, you know, I'm saying, hey, you know, how is your term going? And they said, oh, you know, I, it's okay. I feel like I'm falling behind on my extracurriculars. And there was this sense that they needed to be president of X society and to have founded Y society in a very self-conscious way because they wanted those jobs and wanted those for the career opportunities. And so I was struck by the fact that they did some of the same things and they probably had some underlying interest in them and some underlying passion for them. But because of the context they were in, they actually had 
a way of thinking about the same activities, which was much less meaningful and which alienated them from those activities because they had started to have this self-consciously instrumental purpose that I hadn't felt in Britain. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how I can account for the differences, but I think you described it perfectly well. Again, this sort of disease of instrumentalism where the meaning, the fun, the sort of deep immersion kind of gets sucked out of everything because, you know, nothing is done as an end in itself. And I think nothing can really be enjoyed unless it's done as an end in itself. But this is where we are. Maybe this is what you're saying. It accounts for the inability of American elites to actually stand on principle because it's ultimately never been about principle to begin with. It's always been instrumental. You know, when history puts you to the test, well, there's sort of nothing to fall back on at that point. All you have is your position. You're not going to give that up. I know that there's many academics and even some academic administrators who listen to this podcast regularly. Is there hope for the American University? Is there hope for transforming the American University in a meaningful sense? I mean, one of the things that always strikes me is that the system we have for admissions is deeply flawed in all kinds of ways in terms of who is actually selected for these top universities and who deserves to be there. One thing I remember from my time at Harvard is that at one point, the undergraduate dean, the dean for students, came to speak to a group of us and said, you know, we want to make sure that our students take the intellectual life here seriously. And, you know, we feel like, you know, 10% of the students who are admitted just aren't interested in intellectual things. And 10% are super interested in intellectual things. So they could be at any university in the country and they would be in the library reading things and have this intellectual appetite. I mean, 80% are sort of somewhere in between and, you know, they could go either way. And so we're trying to change the culture so that they become a little bit more interested in these things. And I sort of thought, if you can ascertain that when you're admitting them, why don't you just admit more of the second group? Why don't you just admit more of the students who actually have an intellectual curiosity in the first place? But it's not just about who gets in, which is ultimately a zero-sum question. It's about how the admissions policies determine how students spend all of their high school years. And I think actually the worst thing about the admission system of these top universities is not that they're failing to select for the most intellectually curious students, it's that they're encouraging a million high schoolers to, you know, chase being president of this random club and founding some random club and, you know, pretending to have been involved in some kind of charitable enterprise and doing all the things they need in order to score those points, rather than to encourage them either to really learn about a subject, be really truly excellent in some academic pursuit, or in some other way, develop deep interests and passions in a genuine way, rather than in this sort of CV-filling, box-ticking manner. So that seems to me like an obvious point where perhaps we can't transform the culture of universities, but we can at least change how teenagers are spending years of their lives. But is that enough? I don't think it is. Is there something deeper that colleges can do to change how they're shaping their students and forming a future elite of excellent sheep? Well, what you say certainly makes a lot of sense. Why don't we just change our admissions expectations so that students are really concentrating on learning when they're in high school and therefore will concentrate on learning in college rather than this endless extracurricular busyness. But, you know, I think there's a false premise at work here, which is that what Harvard really wants is to have lots of intellectuals running around. I don't think they want 90% of their school to look like that 10%. 
I think these are elite creating institutions. They're not intellectual creating institutions. There are a few that are like that. University of Chicago, Reed College here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, the St. John's Great Books Colleges, maybe a few others. Bard College is kind of a weird sort of version of that because a lot of it is about the arts rather than, say, the intellectual life per se. But these are institutions that are more or less on the margin. Chicago's a little different, but uh, it always used to be this kind of strange exception that, you know, you went if you were really serious about this stuff, about, you know, Aristotle. But uh, that's never been what Ivy League students have been. The history is not that these were intellectual institutions. They were, you know, country clubs for the WASP aristocracy where people sort of were socialized into the class that they were going to belong to. And that hasn't changed. The class looks different now. Its mores are different. But, I mean, Harvard always says this about itself. Harvard is for leaders. What does it mean to be a leader? It doesn't mean that you're sitting in the library. It means that you're the head of this and you're doing this and you're schmoozing that and, you know, you're meeting the important people through your professors or through your internships or whatever, and you're preparing yourself to occupy the commanding heights of the economy and government. That's what they want. That is what they want. I mean, to a great extent, they are getting what they want. I think it's producing a bad elite. It's making students miserable. But I don't really think we can expect them to change what we can do. But this is not something that universities themselves can do. A lot of the problem we have with all of this now is the way we have defunded public higher education for, you know, going on 50 years now. So it used to be a couple of generations back that talented young people from, you know, around the country would be perfectly content to go to their state's public university or maybe a different state's public university, most obviously California. But, you know, California, Michigan, Wisconsin, Virginia, North Carolina, these are states that all have had great public universities. But, you know, we've been systematically starving them of funds across the country. There are some public universities now that get, you know, less than 10% of their budgets from their states. So they've become more expensive. Used to be that students could go for free. You could put yourself through college with a minimum part-time minimum wage job. You can't do that now. The education has gotten worse. More and more of the teaching is being done by adjuncts. Classes are getting larger and larger. This is one of the big reasons that we have this increasing admission stampede directed at a very limited number of elite institutions, right? If we had 20 or 30 or 40 great public universities in this country, students would be less insane about having to get into, you know, one of the top 12 private universities that have private purposes that are ultimately about their own self-perpetuation, not about the public good. But that's something that we have to do collectively, right? That That's about taxation. That's about budgets. You know, another set of concerns that you have in your writing is about a sort of broader cultural malaise. You've written essays about the way in which the role of friendship has been displaced in society. You've written a book about the end of solitude. And you worry about the changing role of the artist, the difficulty of actually making a living as an artist. How do those broader cultural phenomena interrelate in your mind? Well, there are a number of different things. You know, I joined Facebook in 2008 when my age cohort was joining. My friends were joining, so they were urging me to join. So I joined and I was immediately struck, as I think everybody is, if they remember that experience of 
joining social media for the first time and how completely your life has transformed your relationships, your inner life. So a year later in 2009, I wrote an essay that the editors called The End of Solitude, where I was trying to reflect on what this experience was like, what was happening here. And I talk about solitude as a very particular kind of thing, right? There's the objective state of being alone. You can look at someone and see whether they're alone or not. But there are very different ways to experience that state. There's a negative version that we call loneliness, where that solitude feels empty and frightening. And that aloneness feels empty and frightening. And then there's solitude, which is a kind of full experience of the self and of the world, really, that can only take place when you are able to kind of shut down the social inputs. The thing about social media is that, you know, the world is always with us, as Wordsworth would have said, when we're on social media. It's impossible to get away from the group and what the group wants of you, from what your friends expect you to be. I saw social media taking away this experience that had been for a long time kind of a central experience of being human, of being a modern human, where you're able to draw the line between, you know, where society stops and you start. It's related to some of the things that we've been talking about. This is one of the things I saw among students, that they didn't have the ability to develop a self that was solid enough, that was strong enough, that was self-confident enough to push back against the expectations that were being placed on them. And that was a lot of the reason that they struggled to find a sense of purpose. Like I said, that essay came out in 2009. That was before people had iPhones. I mean, the iPhone, I think, debuted in 2008, but it really didn't achieve, you know, major penetration for several years. So I was talking about a situation where you'd look at Facebook on your laptop and then you'd close your laptop and you'd go about your business. Now we have TikTok on our phones and it's just constant. I mean, I don't think more needs to be said about this. People have been talking about this for a long time, but it interacts with some of the other things that we've been saying. Well, one thing that it interacts with is the misery that I had already identified among my students, that I had already seen among my students, the unhappiness that this constant competitive meritocratic rat race was creating in them, has now been doubled and redoubled by social media and the iPhone. It's even harder for them to get distance from the expectations that are being placed on them, to become somebody who might actually be a slightly different kind of person than the same exact meritocratic product that we've been mass producing for a long time. I find each of your pieces of analysis very compelling, and I'm trying to think through how they add up to a whole. And, you know, I don't particularly like this term neoliberal, which is often thrown around as a kind of form of political battle, and I never quite know what it means. And I sometimes struggle with a description of a marketization of society, but everything has become a market, in part because I think some of the things where that's criticized are actually quite positive and have clearly led to some quite positive results and, and important parts of human you know, life and endeavor. But you take all of this together, and it does seem to be a loss of space for for artistic endeavor, for the valuing of non-marketable goods, for thinking of one's own pursuits in non-instrumental terms. There is a kind of great marketization, instrumentalization of human life, perhaps in general over the last decades, and particularly in the United States, 
but the need and the desire that humans have for having those forms of play and having those forms of creativity and having those forms of self-invention seems to me to be quite profound. And in any society where people aren't immediately starving, where they have some leisure and some ability to go beyond the pressing immediate need of how to get the next meal and how to get to some kind of safe shelter, that is something that perhaps a minority of people, but a significant minority of humans always craves for, always tries to search out. So how is that going to reassert itself? Because I can't quite imagine that the human spirit that has reasserted itself after wars and pandemics and all kinds of terrible human events is going to be defeated by those developments quite so easily. So first of all, let me just say quickly about the artist piece. So three years ago, I had a book called The Death of the Artist. Again, one of these apocalyptic titles pressed upon me by the editor. But it's about what the internet has done to the ability of individual artists. And that means all kinds of artists, writers, musicians, visual artists, etc., their ability to make a living, right? The internet has completely reshaped the arts economy from the standpoint of the individual creator. Maybe we don't have time to talk about all the ways that this has been the case, but for the purposes of the present point, one of the main things that is meant is that in order to support themselves, artists need to be constantly online. They need to build audiences through online platforms and constantly serve them content on a weekly, if not daily basis they are beholden to a much smaller audience than ever before. Even if your album only sold 10,000 copies, I mean, first of all, you got a lot more money for 10,000 copies, but it was 10,000 out of, you know, the whole world who might be interested in your music and would hear about it in some way. Now you have your niche audience of 10,000 people that you are in constant contact with, that you are hearing from, that you are getting feedback from, that is telling you what it expects of you. And you are constantly thinking about, how am I going to make them happy? Now, anyone who knows about art knows that that's death to real creativity, that the artist has to start with their own vision, their own need, their own exploration. They have to, let's say, try to make themselves happy. Or an older age would have said that you are creating for God, that God is your audience. But that really means a kind of ideal understanding of of the perfection of the work. And then you bring it to the audience and hopefully you find an audience and the audience likes it, right? And that process of creating a true art for yourself to fulfill that vision of what the work is telling you it wants to be, it requires kind of open-ended time, right? You need as much time as it's going to take, okay? None of that is how things work on the internet, right? The internet, again, you need constant content, Everything is short-term. Everything has to hit immediately. Nothing has time to develop. The individual artist doesn't have time to develop. So putting together the pieces of what we've been talking about. I know neoliberalism, people don't know what it means. It can get thrown around a lot. But fundamentally, I understand it as an ideology that sees everything in terms of market values, right? Everything is valuable insofar as it can generate money, right? You know, so we're judging our educational institutions based on uh, return on investment and so on and so forth. But that attitude also penetrates the individual, right? The individual is valued not even as consumers, but as producers, right? So now the purpose of sending a kid through school is to make them ready for the job market. And that's the only purpose, right? 
And that really came in, say, 70s, 80s, Reagan, Thatcher. There was a whole pivot in societal values that had, you know, profound ramifications for everything, including defunding of public universities. You add to that the Internet. The Internet has enabled more and more things to be turned over to the market, to be marketized. And it has made each of us a kind of, well, the business people talk this way. We're all brands now. The brand called you. That's a book from, I think, the first decade from the aughts, right? That's what people started to talk about. Brand called you, marketing yourself. So now we have the technology and the language to think of ourselves in anything that we do as these supposed entrepreneurs who are constantly packaging ourselves for profit. And more and more of us have to live this way. More and more of us are getting our livelihood this way. And even people in institutions, college professors, even sometimes high school teachers, are encouraged to be, or at least seize the opportunity to be entrepreneurial to think of themselves not in terms of the institution, but as, you know, sort of the brand that they're building in the larger world. I'm wary to talk about this stuff because you start using words that are very squishy and that can sound, you know, kind of goody-goody, but what do they really mean? But they do name real things. Play is a real thing. Creativity is a real thing. Being human is a real thing, not in the literal sense of being a member of the species, but feeling like somehow your whole self is part of the world and your whole self has the opportunity for expression. And you're not just a widget that's trying to satisfy market demand. You asked me, how do we get out of this? I think you're right that the urge or urges to be human are eternal and irrepressible. But it doesn't mean that they necessarily find expression. And what I always say, whether I'm talking to high school students or college students about this meritocratic rat race or to people about what social media is doing to us, what I always say and what I've had to say to myself, what I have lived in my own life is you can do things differently if you want to. You do not have to be on your phone all the time. You do not have to do 10 extracurricular things in college. If you want to read, if you want to play, you can do those things. You have to realize that there will be costs. You might be foregoing some measure of opportunity for wealth, status, and power. But you're already giving up a lot. You're giving up being human. So maybe you should consider making that trade. That's what I would say. I don't know what we can do about the larger societal forces. But we have to stop thinking of ourselves as helpless before then. Because we're not. So you start to talk a little bit, Bill, about how to get out of this. I mean, you're a writer. You make your living from writing. You've built a kind of brand for yourself without being very active about that, but you're a recognizable name in the writing world, which is a kind of brand. You must feel the pull of those economic considerations, of the considerations of the attention economy, of wanting to be relevant, of wanting to have an essay go viral. You know, beyond the excellent advice you've already given to a high school student a moment ago, how should all of us think about doing meaningful work, being successful enough in our chosen endeavors to be able to pay a mortgage and make sure that the kids we might have have a decent life and so on, but not fall foul to that red race, create that space for ourselves, whether we might be writers or artists or you know, people who are in business or philanthropies or other lines of work, but who want to reconquer a little bit of that space for creativity and play and so on. 
what advice would you have for adults who are thinking through how to reconquer that space? Well, I mean, I'm really wary of dispensing advice on that scale or presuming to think that I can, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to figure this out the same as everybody else. So I know you're being a little bit self-effacing before giving us, but in your advice, how do you think about it for yourself? But let me also say, I mean, part of the reason that I'm wary of giving any kind of advice is, and I do say this to students as well, when they ask me specific questions about what they should do, I always say, listen, we're all different. I don't know you well enough. We all have different needs. We all have different values. So it's not one size fits all by any means. But, I mean, I grew up the son of uh, immigrant parents, Jewish parents, you know, with those Ivy League or bust, you know, you had to be a doctor, the whole kind of meritocratic drama of, you know, if you get an A, you're the most brilliant kid in the world, and if you get an A-, minus, you're worthless. You know, I spent decades struggling with that, and, you know, ultimately it's a long series of daily decisions about how you're going to spend your time. And asking yourself, what is it that makes you feel good? Okay, so I'm not an academic anymore, and I didn't leave academia voluntarily, okay? I was an English professor, an untenured English professor at Yale. And as anybody knows who's been anywhere near academia, the way you succeed in academia is through peer-reviewed research. And nothing else matters. Nothing else gets you rewarded. Not teaching, not writing for a general audience. In fact, if you do those things, you're looked at with suspicion. I wanted to do those things. Those things mattered to me. Being a teacher mattered to me. It was the whole reason I was an academic in the first place. Writing, initially, it was book reviews for the New York Times Book Review. I liked doing it. I needed to have some kind of literary outlet that was more than writing journal articles, which have no literary merit whatsoever. And I wanted to speak to an audience beyond the academy. And I knew that I was taking a risk, and the risk was my next job after Yale wasn't going to be as at prestigious a school. It never occurred to me that I would have to leave academia altogether. That's what ended up happening. Because I did the things that I thought were important and that were gratifying to me, my career took a very sharp right turn. And I found myself in a position of not having a job, not having a paycheck. It's worked out over the last 15 years. And I'm glad it's worked out. There were no guarantees. And on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm still asking myself those questions. I mean, I haven't tried to build myself as a brand because it's gross. And because part of being a brand means you kind of keep delivering the same product over and over again. I wrote Excellent Sheep. It was a bestseller. I could have been one of those people who write a nonfiction bestseller and kind of turn themselves into a nonprofit and sort of go around, you know, doing programming around that issue. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write about something else because that's where my curiosity led me. I didn't want to keep producing the same product. And again, you know, it can make life harder, but it also, to me, it's what's been more rewarding. So, yeah, you asked me to just give myself as an example. That's me as an example. You know, I don't have kids, so that makes choices a lot easier. You got kids, you've got responsibilities to your kids, you know, maybe you have more financial constraint. I'm not saying that we can all do whatever we want. And I say this to college students, too. You can't do whatever you want, but you can try to do as much of what you want as possible. And that starts with letting yourself acknowledge what it is that you want and not caring so much about what other people want. 
you to be or want you to want, like your parents and your peers. And yes, I think this holds as good for adults as it does for college students. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.